Okay. Ready? We'll do a, let's do one, two, three, four, five, and then clap on six. Okay. But do but you gotta do the ands. One and two and three and four. That? Yes. And then we'll clap five and and clap on six. Yep. Okay, here we go. Ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Together, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, nope. here we go. Okay. One and two and three and four and five and Oh, I forgot to clap. God damn it, really? Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. With me, Bob Schneider, and your other host, Clint Wells. You're welcome. All right, welcome to another episode of I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay, Bob's Not Okay. Bob's still on the road. I'm out on the road somewhere. And we're going to kick off this one. Yes? I'm, I'm okay. I mean, I'm not okay, but I'm okay. I was kind of doing the 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 uh, global not okay. I think at the current moment you're okay. You sound okay. No, globally I think I'm okay. Like I really do feel like at this point in my life like I'm okay. And if I'm not okay, that's usually just a perspective thing. And I, if I just shift my perspective a little bit, I can realize, "Oh no, I'm fine." Okay. Okay, I'm with you. Well, we're going to we have an email address, bobandclint@gmail.com and you can write us in whatever you want and we'll talk about it on the show. We don't give a shit. We don't, we don't give a shit, and we'll start with some information that's pretty much who cares. Like that whole thing about how I'm feeling globally and perspective-wise, like as soon as I said I was like, oh, this is information nobody gives a shit about, well, basically. I, I think a lot of people do care about how you're doing. Uh, all right. <laughs> here's, here's what I know what most people care about, how they're doing. That's yeah. what they care about. But a lot of people, a lot, but, but yes, but a lot of people um, orient themselves in the world with, how someone like you might be feeling because a lot of people believe it or not look up to you and look to you for uh, goalposts and guidance on how they're feeling dude speaking of looking up to me i was at this show last night and uh these people wanted to take a picture with me and i was like sure and so they gave the camera to their buddy and that dude got on the ground in front of us like he got down on his knees so that he could get an upshot picture of what i assume were my my low-hanging fruit like i was like what are you trying to do get a picture where my balls look bigger i was like get up off the ground and reach that camera into the stars yeah, to try to make me look a little bit skinnier I know. than my bloated fat fucking face every time i see a photographer like at a gig but they're like you know they're below the stage taking pictures i'm like yep all these are gonna look like shit <laughs> Thanks a lot. Hey, here's my card. If you want to see the pictures, nope, nope, not necessary. Won't be looking at those. Yeah, that's not a good angle. Luckily, though, the stage does make you look a little younger and slimmer. Wow. So thank God. Thank, thank God. God for that. Thank pictures, on the other hand, not so much. Yeah. Well, we got an email here from Michael Condit. He says, hi, Bob and Clint. Love your podcast and look forward to it every week, whether I'm laughing my ass off or scratching my head. You guys are supremely entertaining and enjoyable. Bob, I've been a faithful fan for 20 years and simply can't imagine my life without you and your music as my soundtrack. Clint, I've seen you with Bob many times, but didn't know much of your personality, and I've really enjoyed getting to know you and hear your perspectives on this podcast. Bob and I are essentially the same age. Clint, you're a bit younger, but we're all three in the same situation, happily married, kids, settled down. So my question to both of you is, can I stop shaving my ball sack? Who am I doing that for at this point? What's your current sitch slash philosophy at the crossroads, Michael Condit? Uh, do you want to take this one? 
Uh, I've never in my life shaved my balls. Now, have I gotten down there with a beard groomer and, and tidied it up quite a bit? Oh, yeah. Now, when I was single, was that shit tight and right? Oh, yeah. But I can't even imagine a hairless situation down there. Like, it, like just the idea of that is so... I don't know, hilarious or something to me that I would never and never even attempt it. You never even tried it when you were a kid because I grew up with a, with a sister and she they had this thing called Nair. I, yeah, I tried it as a kid for the first 13 years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> wow, no product necessary. No product necessary. Did I meant 17, 18, you got a, some girlfriends. I don't, can you put Nair on your balls? I did do it. What does that feel like? Uh, hot and spicy. <laughs> oh, my God. Dude, that sounds so horrible. I got to tell you this story. We were on tour with this band. What the hell are they called? It doesn't matter. But it was back in the 90s, and we were playing in Baton Rouge. Gingerbread Men was the name of the band. And they were like a funk band, you know, uh, which was big, I guess, back in the 90s. And... um so they they get on stage to play and then right when they get situated and they're about to start their first song the drummer goes hold up and runs backstage for five seconds and then comes back on stage and then they start their set so after they finish i i went up to him rob kid is the name of the drummer and i was like dude what what happened at the beginning of the show and he goes oh i forgot to rub tiger balm on my balls <laughs> I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, we all rub Tiger Balm on our balls before we go on stage, and it gets us fired up. Now, this is the same band that that same night, about half of them dropped acid, got into a 15-passenger van. There's eight of them, got into a 15-passenger van with all their equipment and no trailer. Yeah. Tripping balls for a nine-hour trip back to San Antonio. Wow. That that was that was some crazy motherfuckers. Those guys. Yeah, I if I'm going to do drugs, which this doesn't really ever happen, but I need to be near a bed. I need to be under my bed immediately. Here's what I don't need to be doing. Be trapped inside a van with seven other people and all your equipment. There was no room. They were like packed in there like fucking you know, like sardines, a, like sardines, but live <laughs> sardines and in a can the size of a man. I've, I've done those, man. I've, we have to take benches out just because you can't afford a trailer and you're sleeping on your fucking guitar case. And I've, I've done those. It's horrible. Did you used to fucking, I, I know you've done it with me where you've gotten on the ground. Oh yeah. Ground of the van and ground of the van and just, it's not a comfortable situation down there. I used to take an Ambien, and I'd be like, all right, I need to find out where my arms and legs are going to go before this bitch kicks in, <laughs> because I'm going to be here for a minute. And I need to make sure it's in a place where I'm not cutting off the circulation to my arms. Because you won't be waking up. <laughs> no, I'm out. I'm out of here. Bye-bye. Clint, go bye-bye. <laughs> uh... Wow. All right, well... Um, the, so currently, I don't even think we've answered this question. <laughs> Do what we, was the question again? Uh, 
the question is, can I stop shaving my ball sack? Who am I doing that for at this point? What's your current sitch philosophy? It depends. It depends. I keep it. Keep uh, it I keep it tidy. I mean, yeah. On the, I, on the off I mean, chance that <laughs> on the off chance that anyone sees my penis other than me. I mean, I yeah, I don't like I don't let it I mean, I just don't do it as often. I used to do it like, you know, once a week and now it's like maybe once every month and a half or something. I'm just, you know, take it back a bit. Uh Tim Hoeft says, Hey, the show is fucking funny. Bob, quick question or two. What happened with the ugly Americans? That music is sexy funny. Are there any studio recordings of the scabs? Amazon search gives me some junk, which definitely ain't you. You keep mentioning that when you both meet fans, you want to think to yourselves, that was a cool interaction. Uh, and then he's attached a picture that won't show up. He says, maybe not like the, oh yeah. Oh, it's a picture of him and you and you're looking real uncomfortable. That's pretty funny. Um, can't wait to see you back at the fine line in Minneapolis. So what happened? He says, "What happened with the ugly Americans? The music, sex, music is sexy, funny. So what happened with the ugly Americans?" Uh, I got sober, basically. Um, that's that's what happened. And was was anyone in that band that's still connected to you musically? Was Bruce in that band? Bruce was in the Scabs, yeah. Uh, so the Ugly Americans. What happened was the Ugly Americans started in about '93, um, and from '93 till '95. Uh, I was playing in that band uh, full time, but it was also the last two years that I was drinking. And so like, I don't even remember most of those shows. I was in a blackout most nights that we were playing. And, um, and I got sober in 95 and in 95, I started a band called the scabs. And then the ugly Americans eventually morphed into the scabs. They kind of became one band over the next two years. Gotcha. So was Adam temple, uh, was Adam temple in the ugly Americans or did he come on board with the scabs? He was he, so I started the scabs with Adam, um, and then at some point, as the two bands kind of became one band, he became the guitar player for Ugly Americans, uh, and then he went out on the road with us one time. But he was such a mess that we never went on the road again. So we did a three week tour with him. That was such a fiasco that I vowed never to go back on. Why? Cause on he, the road because with he's a mess or he's hard to travel with or. He's just a mess. He's hard to travel with. And, and that whole band was, was hard to travel with. And, and a couple of years after that, um, you know, when reality shows started kind of coming on strong, I was like, Oh, we should do a reality show of the scabs on the road because the personalities were so different and everybody was kind of all over the place. There was a lot of drugs, a lot of alcoholism. One of the guys died from alcoholism in that band. Mm. Uh, a few years back. Um, and that would have been interesting, just bringing a camera crew. And that would have been the only reason I would have ever have gone back on the road with them, just to film something like that. But other than that, we were just a a, a stay a stay in Austin band. And around 2000 is when I decided that I was going to concentrate on on a solo career. And I, I, I told those guys in 2000, I was like, look, I'll, I'll give you guys one more year of you know, kind of full time, uh, you know, playing gigs full time. But then after that, I'm going to I'm going to only be doing this every once in a while. And so from 2001 on, we'd play maybe four or five shows a year. With that band. Some of the weirdest stuff for me to see, because I didn't meet you until 2010 or 11, uh, is like early ugly American stuff. What's the song with the video where you're like in a field and shit? Oh, yeah, that's uh, Vulcan Death Grip. Hey! 
that's real that that's a real 90s video clip if you want to check that out dude you guys got to see it and second of all the this the probably the funniest thing i've ever seen is bruce hughes a good friend of mine and a guy that's played music with you forever he showed me a video of you guys playing at a place called the black cat oh yeah and the video is taken from the very back of the club and it's super packed and I'm watching the video, and and in the video, the band is taking the stage, and everyone has long hair, including Bruce. So I can't really tell who's who because you guys all look so different. The band's playing like this funk funk rock shit for like 20 minutes or 30 minutes, and I'm like, man, when's Bob gonna start singing? And Bruce is like, Bob's not even on stage yet, and I didn't even realize it. But you don't even come on stage until like 30 minutes into the show. Oh yeah. And I'm like, well, what were you doing? And you're like, I don't know. Who knows? Just backstage drinking and. Like, but the band started. Like, that just seems like a weird hurricane of of fun that you guys were having back then. Well, one of the uh, one of the big bands that, that that everybody in that band liked were the Meters, and they they had a lot of instrumental songs. So we had four or five, maybe more instrumental songs than Ugly Americans, and they would always start the show with a couple instrumentals. And when I say a couple instrumentals, that could be. 20 minutes like they do 10 minutes i mean it was really boring and horrible and what ended up happening was it really was it was truly it was music i don't like at all and so when i got sober in 95 uh and we started playing you know we we were signed uh at that point to a major label and uh had just recorded a record and put it out and we're touring it and stuff and i was like dude this music sucks uh, it but was you were, fine when you But you were writing it, right? Well, it was, but I mean, it was fine when I was drinking. If right. you're drunk, you know, it's like, you know, it's like you, it, it, you know, it's like when you meet a chick at a bar and you're super wasted and then you wake up the next morning and you're like, ooh, what did I get myself into? That's what it felt like with Ugly Americans. And so that's why I kind of put all my heart and soul into the scabs, which is, which was a passion project. And, and it was very eclectic and, and, it was a bunch of stuff that I liked, like really sappy sort of love songs like Neil Sedaka and uh, stuff like that mixed in with just really vulgar, crude, almost like uh, performance art rock pieces like Satan Stole My Tampons and I Fucked Your Daughter in the Ass Boy. Big butts and blowjobs, they go together like the sun and the sky, like the whiskey and the rye, and like my baby and I. And now, even though we were doing like uh, Neil Sedaka songs mixed in, people, you know, obviously were like, oh, yeah, I went and saw them and they were talking about fucking somebody's daughter in the ass. And so that's kind of what got all the attention with that band, even though it really was all over the place. It was a very, very much an art rock band. But then it switched into becoming like just, you know, like uh, Maceo Parker or something or James Brown. Right. Well, the scabs are sort of even to this day. The legend of the scabs really is that it was a the the it was the party band to go see. It was a party gig. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, well, that's what it became. Once we realized, oh, if we just play dance music all night, all the girls that live in Austin are going to come to the show, and if all the girls are there, then all the guys are going to be there, and that's what ended up happening. And it was sold out every night, and it was a huge fun party. And what was like it? it wasn't H E B a scabs tune? It was, yeah. I'm going to the H-A-B! 
What's the premise of H-E-B? Uh, the premise? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. It's just a stupid rock star. Uh, just going I, down to the H-E-B? I'm going... Well, it was, it, the idea was, like, there were all these songs... There were all these, you know, these hardcore metal songs where I am gonna suck change dick. <laughs> you know, like there are all these songs, and so I thought it would be funny to to use that sort of, you know, uh, emotional feeling, and then just like I'm going to the H E B, which is the shopping, <laughs> you know, like to go buy groceries. I am going to the H E B. And it was something very funny about that, dude. Do you, I don't know if you remember this, but we used to always write songs during sound checks because we were so bored or whatever, just trying to have fun. And we've actually written some pretty good ones. Um, what was the one we wrote in Salt Lake City? And we were we, uh, we recorded. Oh, it. he he right he right yeah 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 shit. And they would sing the songs in high falsetto that bordered on divinity. Sing about how the birds that flew through the sky would fall to the ground around his feet. They would set fire to the cities of their enemies, leaving behind nothing but pain and misery in their passing. And they would sing with joyous hearts of his time in the desert, of the bright red shawl and prayer beads his girlfriend had made by hand late one night during the hottest summer anyone could recall. His hands as smooth as cheese, his breath a friendless reminder of hopes crushed under the sands of time, buried but not forgotten, the certainty of a land whispered about but never fully explained, waiting forever. They would sing with all their might, they would sing with all their might because... Remember we wrote that song called Florida? Oh yeah. Dude, that song is great. And then we wrote it in Florida at yeah. Soundcheck. And yeah. then I got home and tried to write some more lyrics to it. Because and... the only lyric was Florida. <laughs> I'm going to Florida. Florida. Yeah. And uh, I tried to change it to like, I'm going to Austin, Texas, you know, or whatever. And it just didn't work at all. Well, but at the time we were like, this should be the, the state, the theme song for the entire state of Florida. Oh, 
Absolutely. Like I was like, uh, it seems like, oh, I should have been able to go home, finish that song. We could have recorded it, sent it to the tourism board in Florida. <laughs> and and I'm telling you, that could have been the song for Florida. It was really cool. Um, but my brain just doesn't work that way. I I write what I write. And if I have an agenda, like where I have to write a song about something, I'm I can do it. It's not good. It doesn't turn out good. And it doesn't. And when I say it doesn't turn out good, it doesn't satisfy me. Like at the end of it, like when I finished writing that Florida song, I was like, I don't like what this is. And it's kind of like set in concrete after the first day. It's like trying to go back in and and take the handprints out of a, a sidewalk that where the concrete set. I just don't, I can't do it. You, you and I are so alike songwriters <clears throat> and that it suits you as a career artist for sure. For me here in Nashville, writing a million songs for like for a whole bunch of different reasons. It's, I frustrate a lot of the people I collaborate with because once we get a song birthed, sometimes people will come back and be like, Hey, let's do another day and let's like tweak that bridge. And I'm always like, no, I do not. I'm not interested. I don't care. Even if it's like, I get that it could be better, you go fix the lyric. I just, oh, once, yeah. once it's done, even if it didn't, if it wasn't a home run, because here's the deal, and you're the same way, I got another crop of songs coming immediately, so there's no problem. And the idea of taking a whole other day to redo it just doesn't, it just doesn't seem like a good use of my time. That happens all the time here. People want to comb over lyrics later. And sometimes it makes it better, but a lot of times that shit makes it worse, too. Well, I know when I do it, when when I take out some of the janky stuff that doesn't make sense, or like, I'll just throw in a sentence here and there that just doesn't make sense. It's like kind of crazy. And then if I go back later and go, oh, this is a really good song. Let me get rid of this one line and make it more palatable. It always makes it worse. Right. And what ends up happening is like I'll find the original demo at some point, like on my iTunes, it'll pop up and I'll hear it. And I'm like, oh, that's so much better than this revised thing that's less janky, but it's just not as interesting. And so I just stopped doing it. Like now, like whatever I write first, even if it's kind of crazy, I keep it because it's always more interesting. In fact, I just did it this week. I wrote a song, and it was a rap song. It was a throwaway song. I kind of wrote it with my daughter, who's four. And uh, she was like, she noticed that with cars, the white lights were in the front and the red lights were in the back. Mm -hmm. And she started saying, white lights in the front, red lights in the back. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a rap song. White lights in the front, red lights in the back, <laughs> white lights in the front. So I wrote a rap song, and then I wrote all these nonsensical lyrics and I was like, I actually kind of like this song. And so then I'm like, oh, let me go in and fix some of these lines. And I fixed them and I recorded the fixed lines. And then I was like, okay, that's better. And then a day later, I heard the original lines. And I'm like, that's so much better than this polished version that I came up with. So many times when I'm co-writing, uh, the message that I'm getting back about my lyrical contributions, it's too weird or doesn't make sense. And I'm always like, exactly. And there have been a few songs. So most of the songs I write, they go to various publishing companies or artists try to cut them or whatever. Or they go to film and TV. And I don't care about them. Occasionally, there'll be a song that I actually feel emotionally connected to. 
And every time that I want to re-record one of those, like for me, I go back to the lyrics I threw out that got rejected that are weirder. And I think it's better. I think those versions are better than what, than the polished bullshit that we squeeze out of our Nashville buttholes, you know? Yeah, I mean, I lo- I like stuff that's unexpected. Like if I hear something that I haven't heard before, or uh, then I'm 100% in. There's that famous story about the song Hey Jude, which Paul McCartney wrote for John's son, Julian. It's kind of a sad song. And he was the story is he was playing it for John. And he was kind of nervous, you know, because it's a song about John's kid. And they had this sort of brotherly competitive thing outriding each other. And when he got to the line that said... Uh, the movement you need is on your shoulder. And he was like, oh, that's, I'm going to throw that line away. We're getting rid of that. And John was like, that's the best line of the whole song. And Paul's like, yeah, but it doesn't mean anything. I don't even know what it means. And it's like, John immediately, I was like, that is the coolest line. Because it is a weird line. And what does it mean? The movement you need is on your shoulder. Hang in there, you know? I love First that of all, I never, I knew, I never knew those were the actual lyrics yeah. to that part of the song. Yeah. I thought it was something else. What do you think it was? Uh, I don't know, but it, definitely not that. Well, he only does it one time. The refrain changes every time. Um, uh, well, you know, it is a fool who who tries to play it cool and makes the world a little colder. The movement you need is on your shoulder. He changes it every time. It's a brilliant song. I don't know if you're you a big Beatles guy. You're not a big Beatles guy, are you? I, I mean, I love the Beatles. I listened to the Beatles a lot as a kid. I don't listen to them now. And I don't really listen to a lot of music now. Um, and if I do, I kind of listen to it once, kind of like I would listen to a comedy record where I just want to kind of see what mm-hmm. what they're doing. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, OK, I got it. And then I'm and then I just don't listen to it again. What was the last song you heard that was unexpected and you liked it enough to listen to it again? Where you made a note, or maybe you maybe you shazammed it, or you saved it on your phone, or whatever. The last record that I loved from beginning to end that I've listened to multiple times was that Connor Oberst uh, Ruminations and Salutations records. Uh, one of them he did it solo, where he's playing piano and guitar and harmonica, and then a year later he went back and recorded the record with a band. Mm. And those records are phenomenal. I need to check that out. I love those records. But like that Billie Eilish record that came out, I really like that record. Love it. But I'm not going to re-listen to that record over and over again. Hmm. Obviously, the songs that are getting played are the more poppy, um, bombastic songs. But really, half of that record is a very slow, almost jazzy, dark ruminations on loneliness and love that are not pop music. It's just these beautiful that her brother, these beautiful sonic landscapes her brother made that she sort of very quietly sings over really dark lyrics, unexpected lyrics, a lot of left turns. Um, People don't really buy records anymore, but I think people would be really shocked to hear that most of that record is kind of croony, dark piano stuff. Right. And I'm not doing this because of Billie Eilish or that record. I'm doing it because of the passion in your voice right now. Zip. (laughs) Well, as long as I can inspire grown men to unzip their pants, then I am I am doing God's work. I was, I was actually zipping it back up. <laughs> I was getting too excited. Oh, boy. I was like, I, be, I better zip it up this time. I had to put the Leviathan away, huh? <laughs> That's what you want to call it. <laughs> That's what I want to call it. That's what I like to call your dick. I call it the 
the dirty scowl, but you can call it the Leviathan. The dirty scowl? The dirty scowl. Scowl? I think that's I think that's the name of his ship, a scowl. <laughs> can you spell it, please? Can you spell the word no. in question? No, I can't. I think it's S-C-O-W, but who knows? <laughs> I've never heard the word scowl. Dude, I've never used the word scowl ever. I don't think life, it's real. I'm looking at a look, a wide beam sailing dinghy. <laughs> A wide beam sailing dinghy, and I just pulled that shit out of my ass like I knew what I was talking about. Wow, that's the part that's weird. Let's read the second de- definition: a flat bottom boat with sloping ends, used as a lighter and a lighter and in dredging and other harbor services. Yeah, but that's that's not what I meant. I you... meant a wide beam sailing dinghy. <laughs> <laughs> it actually does say dinghy. They should oh put a hyperlink God. on dinghy because I'd have to look dinghy up too. What the fuck's a dinghy? That's the dude. That's the part of my brain that I find the most fascinating is because I'm really quite a dummy. I really in in a lot of regards. But then I'll pull something like that out of my ass, and I'm like, where did that come from? How do I know that? I mean, I what it is is with me. I'm pulling in so much information all the time. And that's where all the songs come from. And I think that that's with most writers. Like a lot of people are like, oh, I don't know where the song comes from. I feel like I'm channeling it through someone else. It's because it's all in that. It's all in the ocean. Absolutely. Of your brain. And you're above the water. And what you're seeing above the water is not what's in the water. And so you think, oh, I don't know where all these fish are coming from. They're coming from your subconscious. I imagine you floating in a um, an inner tube in the this metaphorical ocean you're talking about. I picture myself floating in a in a wide beam sailing dinghy. Well, I was going to say right below the surface, your dirty scowl is urinate, <laughs> urinating into the ocean. <laughs> no, man, it's true. Like writers, writers have to. It's the reason you and I love films and, and TV so much, and the reason you and I are avid readers and stuff. You have to pour all that shit in to to have output. I believe. You know, like you and I have talked about this before in the song game where we write a song a week. If if you're not putting anything in in the first year, you're going to write 50 Ryan Adams acoustic love songs. And then those got to go. Those got to get the fuck out of there. And then like I did when I in my first several years in the game, then I write 30 rock songs, 30 dance songs. And then you you have to con- if you want high volume output and quality output also you have to fucking take put stuff in that ocean other than your own dirty scow urine i think it's like anything it you can you can be like ray davies and write um what was that big hit he wrote when he was 16 that was their big hit um, um you talking about uh um not muscle not lola or uh you really got me you talking about the kinks you really yeah you really got me now he wrote that when he was like 16 or right. 17 or whatever and you can write something like that when you're young but you're getting super lucky it's like you it's like the the first time you bought a lottery ticket you got lucky and won the lottery i remember hearing the the song royals for the first time i was actually staying in your guest room we were leaving for a tour and I loved the song, as I love it today. One of my favorite songs of all time. But I remember thinking what the first time I heard Royals, like, ooh, this chick is fucked up. Like, I was just picturing some damaged 35-year-old. And then I heard that she was 16. And I was like, oh, that's why it's so weird. I've never seen a diamond in the flesh I cut my teeth on wedding rings in the movie. And I'm not proud of my address. 
In a torn up town No postcode envy But every song's like Gold teeth, grey goose Dripping in the bathroom Bloodstains, ball gowns Trash in the hotel room We don't care We're driving Cadillacs in our dreams Because she's 16 Right, it's she's 16 But she also has a father who's older And he's a poet So she's she's been immersed in this sort of like a Neapolitan environment where, and so now she's got all that energy of being a 16 year old where everything that you do is right. And you know, everything, but the information that you're drawing from is this sort of deep, sophisticated, uh, poetic sort of environment that she's been living in. Hold on a second. You know, stewing it. Hold on a second. (laughs) <laughs> all right, well, that's that's all our that's time like for a, today. That's like a Serbian zipper. <laughs> I think that's my new metal band name. Good night, Darkonda. We are Serbian zipper. Ooh, Serbian zipper. Don't forget to zip up. Uh, listen, go leave us a positive review at uh, iTunes or wherever you stream all this shit. And uh, write us in an email, bobandclint at gmail.com. Check out Bob's other podcast, The Song Club, my other podcast, Metal Up Your Podcast. And with that... I'm going to get the fuck out of here. Peace. Peace.